Welcome back to The Strawman Investor. My name's Andrew Page, and over the next little while, I'll be your host as we dive into the world of startups and technology. In today's episode, I'm joined by Ben Sharp, a man who is deeply involved in the local startup scene and someone with a ton of experience when it comes to media and early stage businesses. In his early days, Ben spent a bit of time at Yahoo Australia before going on to co-found Alua Media and also launching AdRoll into Australia. He's also backed a number of Aussie tech startups, including Conversant Media, Audience Republic, and First Rung. He's no stranger to the public markets either, among other things being an early backer of Afterpay, a stock that, as I'm sure you're aware, has done absolutely wonderful in its short time on the market. I really enjoyed talking to Ben and hope you get as much out of this conversation as I did. Well, Ben, thanks very much for joining me. Andrew, thanks for having me. Great pleasure to have you here. There's so much to talk about. But I thought where I would start is I was having a bit of a sticky beak at your LinkedIn profile. And it says there that you've got to focus on creating and building successful media businesses. And a short sentence, but there's a lot to unpack in that. And mm. I guess where I would like to start is, is what do you think makes a successful media business? Well, the million dollar question, actually billion dollar question quite possibly, yeah. what makes a successful media business? Um, I think if you have a look at you know the things that I've been involved with over the past 15 years, they've been media businesses but have been closely tied to technology. Right. So they've been a good blend of you know media, putting ads on the internet, let's say, yeah. but the way in which you do that is you need technology to enable that to happen as quickly, as efficiently, or in as targeted way as possible. Um, when you think about media, there's two parts to media. There are consumers that actually read content, mm -hmm. and then there's businesses that want to advertise to, uh, to, to those consumers. So yeah. a media business needs to be very good at both sides of that marketplace. And to be able, for that to happen, if you are producing content, you need to be able to produce content which is of high quality, is unique, is sticky, that consumers want to read and can become really passionate about. And on the other side, in the B2B side of the market, you need to ensure that when consumers are actually coming to your website or they are you know, consuming your content, there is a way for them to be served a relevant ad or the right type of experience that can be monetized by your by your customers. Right. So um, it's a you know the media space and the me the media and technology space. It's fascinating, mm -hmm. right? It is so fast moving. It's so innovative. The impact of technology is massive. Like it is, like it, it is so massive. You can't understand. Um, and some of the data that you can look at even suggests that there is more data that is consumed or produced in the media space than what is um, generated through the public markets, um, through the exchanges on the pub public wow. markets, and or by many banks. So Jeez. the data requirements and the technology requirements in the media space are immense. So there's obviously been this huge, well-documented structural shift from sort of the old media to new media. And as you say, that's, that's sort of been um, facilitated by technology. But do you think that that story has played out yet? Are we still very, very early stage in this transition? Or do you think like the, the biggest part of that transition has, has already occurred and now it's just a matter of sort of these business models refining and the market leaders sort of solidifying that position? Or is this still wide open to your, to your way of thinking? If we were having a conversation like this uh, 12 years ago, 
we would have been saying, oh, Microsoft is the dominant technology business in the world. No one could ever disrupt them, right? right? And now have a look at the dominant technology businesses on the, you know, in, in the world. I don't think Facebook existed 12 years ago, did it? Was uh, it 2004? They, 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 they existed, oh, they but they were, they were small and it was, they, right. were, they were a private company then yeah. as well. So if you have a look at the four dominant or four or five dominant technology businesses, Facebook, Google, Google Apple, Amazon, yeah. um, it, you know, if you are a new starter or if you look at the market, you say, hey, the, the technology and media market is wrapped up by these four dominant players. There's mm. no room for anyone to disrupt them. Mm. I think that's absolutely incorrect because the media and technology space moves so, so quickly. There is always going to be opportunity for disruption. Um, admittedly, those four large players have such a stranglehold on the media and the technology market and how consumers actually consume content and, and mm. what they do online. But uh, technology is rapidly evolving. The speed of new technology development is quicker now than what it was even five years ago. Yeah. So what you will see is that there will be someone to come along and disrupt one of those businesses. Really, yeah. Absolutely, it, ha yeah. it, will, it will have to happen. Um, but it won't happen overnight. You know, there will be, there, there, there are definitely some businesses that are emerging now that um, we're probably not even aware of that will be the disruptor that we turn around in 10 years time and say why don't I put money into that and that's possibly you know what we're seeing in the world of AI and maybe in the crypto or blockchain right, space right I know one of the arguments tends to go with why it's different now as to perhaps it was 15 years ago is in the sense that a these guys have actually got viable business models two they're very aware of of their of their dominance and that threat of disruption. So what they tend to do is is to fold back in any of the revenues and cash flows that they're earning back into the business to sort of keep that R&D, you know, right at the limit that and make sure that they've got this sort of um, defensive lead. And then the other thing that they've got is we've just got such a big pile of cash here is anyone who sort of pops their head up and starts to look a little bit interesting will just poach them. And so one of the arguments, that, well not one of the arguments, one of the things that I hear posited a lot is that where the opportunity lies is more so in the niche players. So, okay, social media on a mass scale might be stitched up by Facebook, but maybe a, a, a social media specifically for mothers groups, for example, mm. might be something. Do you think there's much truth to that, or is it, or is it even in these, even in these, like the home turf, like the the foundations of these businesses, is that still up for grabs? Do you think uh, there, there is such a place for niche social uh, social networks to right. emerge, and this is what we've seen over the past four or five years. If you have a look at some of Facebook's biggest acquisitions, WhatsApp. Right. Right. They paid a lot of money for that. Yeah. Great purchase. They bought Instagram, well, I was, right? I was going to say Instagram. Awesome, yeah. awesome purchase, yeah. right? Barely and monetized yet either, by the way, that platform. That, a lot of growth. That, that's right. That. But what that's allowed them to do is to continue to grow their consumer base, yeah. offer more opportunities for their consumers to engage with them, um, spread their um, wings even further across the digital ecosystem and make it much more difficult for competitors to come along because they have uh, you know, great platforms and very quick speed of development. And the interesting comparison there is that this Snap business, now I don't wanna be overly critical of anyone. However, I was in a, a, a public discussion on LinkedIn about 12 months ago over what I thought or what a, a couple of us thought the Snap price might land at. Now I can't remember the, the numbers. I think they um, listed at about 20 bucks and they came down to about 
about 15 yeah, and right. I said, oh, listen, I think we're going to, you know, see them level out at about 11 or 12 and now they're sub 10. So Snap is a business under threat mm. um, and it's under threat because of the dominance of Facebook and of Instagram. Now, if you um, do any reading of what's happening in the US technology space, there's a bunch of forecasts that are saying that Snap may cease to be a standalone um, and publicly listed company by the end of next year because their market cap, which has come down to, I think it's about $13 billion, Mm. um, is almost at the point where it's a relatively easy acquisition target for someone else. So, you know, their their, their value is going to come down to a point where someone will buy them. And who could buy them? And Amazon could buy them because it's going to offer a differentiated product for for what they're doing. Um, But then the other part of your, your question is, is there um, space for niche social networks to emerge? Absolutely. And I think that's where the disruption is going to come from. I'll give you a, an example of a local exa- a, a, a local business that I'm aware of. And it's someone that I've done some, you know, some work with over the past 12 months. But there's a travel social network called Travello. If anyone wants to look at them, have someone a look. Someone mentioned that to me just the other day. Yeah, yeah. Travello app. Yeah. Uh, Traveloapp.com is the place to, to go to. Business, business, a Brisbane-based business. Yeah. Uh, started by two guys, Ryan and Mark. Great guys, understand the travel space. Um, they've spent the past four years building what you'd describe as an MVP. Right. And, you know, they raised money initially from uh, friends, family and fools. You know, those people that go into <laughs> yep. angel investing, of which I'm one. Um, and, you know, built a, have built a great product. You know, they've built five a... Five net- years, five years? Four to five years building, wow. a, building yeah. a product, right? Um, but this is what happens in the world of tech, right? It's Especially the o- when overnight you build- success that takes five years... In- if you listen to Simon Sinek, he says it's taken me a long time to be an overnight success, and that's <laughs> the case it. with everyone, right? Yeah, yeah. But um, what Travello are doing is really interesting, which is they are building a social, a global social network specifically around travel and helping people that are traveling to new destinations to connect with and meet other people with similar interests. And they this year, actually only uh, about three months ago, have secured a pretty um, decent amount of investment and are now on a very fast growth path. So um, that's an example of a niche social network which is differentiated from anyone else out there that has a unique value proposition that has been really focused in one core area that will attract engagement from a particular audience segment which is so vastly different from what a Facebook or an Instagram can and as a result, consumers will use it and advertisers will start to see benefit um, you know, in it. And that type of business is a business that becomes a very interesting acquisition target for a, a large player at some point. Yeah, yeah, 100%. So. What I'm, this sounds like, I didn't intend it to go this way. I'm very overtly aware that I'm someone who's got a social network and is trying to build it, but much earlier on in the journey, I don't mean it to to be such a leading question, but I guess what I've learned so far is that there's, I think naively going into it, I thought that was majorly a a technology challenge and the technology challenge was a lot more difficult than I expected. Mm. But then that's really just gives you a ticket to the dance. And, And I'm interested in these guys particular case is that once you've got the technology you've, you've got this this thing called a network effect that if you don't have that doesn't matter how good te- the technology is like the product is useless if why am i going to use a travel app if no one else is on it so you have this you've got to seed these networks you've got to get that critical mass before any of the other things that happen so what a is that 
in your mind, one of the bigger challenges? And B, how do you overcome that challenge? Uh, I think any time you're building technology, the first hurdle, as you've said, mm. how do I build the technology? Can it work? Um, is it scalable? If 10 people use it, that's great. What happens if 100 people right, use it? What right. happens if 1,000 people use it? Yeah. You know, is it is it actually going to work, right? And that's the first thing that you need to do. And you're right. That gets you to, to the dance. Right. Um, but then once you've built that and you say, hey, I've got this great app. I've got this great piece of technology. People need to use it. And... You know, we can all get very confused about things, but there's no difference between what's happening now in building social networks to probably what happened in the you know world of Web, web 1.0 in yeah. the late 90s and early 2000s. The concept at the time was, I'll build a website. People will come to the website. If you build it, they will come. I will make a lot of money because people uh, you know, visit my website. But yeah. actually getting the right types of people and the right numbers of people to your website is that it was. And getting them to stay. Getting them to stay yeah. is the most difficult thing. I know this. I built a publishing business in 2007, the Allure Media business. Yep. And uh, the, the economics or the, the, um, the idea is no different now, which is if you build a social network, you absolutely have to have technology and a positioning statement for that network that actually makes sense. Right. There's got to be a great user journey or user experience for people when they're coming to the social network. Yeah. And there has to be other people on it, yes. right? So, yes. you know, if no one's there, then it's not a social network. It's a, I don't know, a bit of content or... An it's inter- a very expensive hobby as well. Yeah, that's, that's yeah. right. So, um, you know, whether you are a Travello or whether you are an Uber... Um, you absolutely need to have people on both sides of the of the marketplace, you know, consuming and delivering content or or information, and it's really really difficult. Um, the world of the web is scattered, and I mean scattered with uh, the bones of social networks that just didn't get enough users on <laughs> yep. them, right? Yep. And they didn't get enough users on them because when people were building their business plans. They didn't realize how difficult it is Mm -hmm. to generate an audience. Now, who typically builds an app? They're a tech or a dev person, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Um, They're in many cases not a great marketer, but to to understand how you can build a product and attract and engage an audience and get them to come back, that is the the really difficult thing. And it is one of the reasons why businesses are either successful or unsuccessful, right? Yeah. So technology first, absolutely, it's the it's the platform that you work on. Um, at, but secondly, you need to get really, really sophisticated, strategic and focused about growing that audience and engagement. It also makes those kinds of businesses super exciting but super tough to value, right? Because you're looking at, you know, it's not like a, an established industrial business where you're trying to guess, look, a sale's going to grow at 3 to sort of 8%, you sort of work at all that. This is really a case of, a very, very large number or zero. And there's this big sort of this daylight in between it because it it kind of, it's nothing until it's something. And that gap can be be quite wide. So with with your angel investing sort of hat on Mm. and you're looking at these businesses and that perhaps they've done a lot of market research, there's a good pitch deck there, the technology's robust. And, you know, they're they're, they're basically saying, look, this is the market opportunity. This is where we're going to get to. You know, you've got a lot of options as to where you invest your money. What are the things that will sort of tip you into sort of backing one of those kinds of companies as opposed to the other? Is, is there something that just makes you go, yep, these guys get it or these guys are just never going to get it no matter what, what happens? Uh, that, that's an awesome question. I think if anyone in the angel suit or VC space had an answer to that, a sophisticated answer to right. that, um, we'd all be generating thousand-time okay. returns okay. very quickly. However, um, having invested into a 
you know, a, a lot of uh, businesses at Angel and Seed Stage, there's a few things that I look at when I meet founders and it's helped me make more of an educated gamble as opposed to just dropping money on the crypto markets, right? So that has its own kind of, well, I guess, educated gamble perspective to it anyway. We but when dig you into that later. Yeah, actually, might, maybe. Yeah. But, uh, you know, when, you, when you're investing into an, a, a business very early on as an angel investor, you want to make sure that the founder themselves or the founding team have experience in their market space. Have they come from the industry? Do they understand the industry? Do they have connections with uh, potential customers or some of the customers that they are working with? You know, what's their knowledge of that industry and how they're going to engage with it? That's number one. Right. Secondly, do they have a clear, focused and easily articulated value proposition and what it is that they are going to deliver? Because having a vision for you know what they want to build is one thing and it's really, really important, but the ability to execute on that is the next piece. And you know, think of strategy and tactics. Totally um, yeah. And you want to be able to see that your founder or founding team understands the link between how they can set a strategy and what they're going to do on a day-to-day basis to meet and deliver against that. Um, Which th- is a huge jump, by the way, right? Like, it, it, I've, you know, I personally have found that incredibly difficult. Did you actually get to the specifics? And that, that, that very simple question of, what is it that you do and how are you going to execute on that? Yeah. Oh, that, that's right. It's really hard. Now, a couple of the businesses that I'm And yet really obviously invo- you think you, should, why, you don't know that? Like, that that's, that's hard. That's exactly right. Um, now, if you're a visionary, you know, you've created the idea for a product, are you always the right person to execute on a day-to-day basis? No. Probably not. But when you are launching your own startup, if it's just yourself or there's just, you know, a handful of you, you need to do everything, yeah. right? And if you can't get an understanding or appreciation for what that everything is, then there's every chance that you're going to fail. You know, if you read, uh, you know, Jamie um, uh, Jamie Pride's Unicorn Tears, you know, yes. he talks about the execution yeah. piece. If you read Peter Thiel's Zero to One, Great book. it is, uh, you know, very much around, hey, everyone's got an idea, right? Um, but what's an idea? Like a, an idea is not a business. An idea is an intention to, you know, maybe an intention to go and do something. Yeah. But it's not until you actually get into your business or you get into your startup and you actually start doing things that are um, tangible and productive on a day-to-day basis that will determine the success of your business. So you have to be really good at executing. And as an investor, you want to look at your founders and say, great visionary, great approach, understand the market, um, you know, the market that they're servicing. But I can see this person being really scrapping and being able to do the small tactical things really well and remaining uh, focused and, and, uh, you know, uh, uh, kind of focused on those things as well. So that's, you know, that's the that's the next piece. The um, the other thing that I look at when I, uh, you know, assess new businesses to invest in is what is the market opportunity? So. How big's the market? It doesn't need to be a global market from day one. I think we've all heard the term, you don't want to boil the ocean, right? Right, right. And kind of, you know, it kind of makes sense. But, you know, I kind of hate using that term, but there needs to be a viable market. You need to understand the size of that market. um, But also, how will the business actually start approaching segments within that market? Because you can't go after the entire market on day one the founder and whoever is going to be selling, hopefully the founder is the one that's selling, um, has a really clear view to say, next month, I'm going to engage with 10 customers and they happen to fulfill, you know, this 
type of segment. This is the message that I'm going to deliver to them. Um, then after that, I'm going to obviously learn, iterate, and then go to the next 10 customers and speak to them about, you know, maybe what I've learned, but also a different way of engaging with them. So you can right. see that they um, have a, you know, a, a, an approach to the market which actually makes sense, yep. but they can learn, reprioritize, iterate. Um, they can be coached, uh, you know, uh, you know, either, you know, by the investors or people around them and they learn and put those learnings into practice. Let me flip it around a little bit. So let's say a lot of these things are lining up um, for an early stage business and it looks as though all of that kind of stuff is in place. Now, for whatever reason, probably a lot of luck is thrown into all of this, you know, right place, right time and so many sort of X factors in there. For whatever reason, we just know statistically most are going to fail and for a whole bunch of reasons. So another great skill that I find in investing is one, acknowledging that you're just going to make a bunch of bad investments. That's, that's the nature of it. But two, recognizing it early enough and being decisive enough when that realization happens. What are the danger signs? No matter how well it started and how well it looked to begin with, what are some of the real for you, the obvious danger signs that you start thinking, hang on, this isn't going, and and is that just it? Do you just like a Band-Aid, rip that off and, and walk away, or are there other things that you can kind of do before you, you completely bail? Um, it's a big question. Yeah, so. yeah. Once you've handed your money over, you're, uh, you're committed, so you're not, well, you, you can't really walk away other than just stop you know, making proactive or you know, right. uh, phone calls to help, right? Um, Startups quite often have multiple funding rounds. So each yeah. time they do a funding round at a high valuation, they're asking for you know more money and maybe yeah. for you to top up. Yeah. Um, so Which you can your, resist though, of course. If you, don't you, don't, ha- you don't. You don't have to throw more good money after bad potentially. You do not have to yeah. follow on. Uh, and you know every startup will give you an opportunity to follow on with it yeah. with future fundraising. Um, but you do not need to participate. So um, you know that that's probably one signal that an investor can show to say, hey, I don't have a huge amount of confidence, so I'm actually not going to follow on in this future round whatever it happens to be yeah. if the fund round funding round that's happening is basically being done because they need to keep the lights on right, right. so right. um not not to double down on some growth initiatives that are working for example oh yeah but that, rather just to keep the, as you say, oh, the, bus- the, the businesses that i followed yeah. on with have been those that have been really clear from day one and they've said hey we're raising $500,000 now this is like what we're going to call as our seed round Um, over the next 12 months this is how we're going to spend that money and what we're going to achieve Um, in six to nine months from now what we are going to do we're going to go back to market and we're going to raise either a pre a or a you know second seed round it's going to be around this valuation it's going to be tied to uh, delivery you know against our business plan and if you can see that progression you you say actually I invested in it you know valuation of 2.5 or 3 million bucks yeah. um they're coming back to me now at a valuation of five i'm prepared to follow on maybe i'll put more in because i can see the progression that they're making right however if you've got a founder actually i wrote about this on startup smart last yeah. week um i'll put the link of that in the podcast notes by the way yeah so i i, I wrote about this last week which is to say it's great hearing good news from founders right yeah you love hearing that yeah but you need to make sure it actually is good news, Ver- right? Verify it. Yeah, yeah. Ver- verify it. Um, because I actually want to hear from my founders um, what's working, what's not, where do you need help, yeah. okay? Because it's the areas where they need help. That's where you can have an impact, right? Yeah. So that's where you can uh, actually help them change, you know, their approach, what they're doing. Uh, you know, there's a whole bunch of things there. Yeah. Let's not fix the things that are working well. Right. Let's fix the bad stuff. Yes. Um, but it's those founders that 
always and are consistently giving you positive news about everything that you have to start questioning. Now, I've managed sales teams for a long time and I know whenever a salesperson comes to me and says, everything's great, but the results aren't there, you red, need to start flag. digging. Red yeah. flag straight away. Yeah. And I think most of us in the angel investing space have always have had this uh uh, this situation where you've had a founder that says, oh, things are great, things are so good, oh, we've got these clients coming on board, oh, we're doing this, everything's good, you don't need to worry. And then two months later, they go, shit, I ran out of money. And <laughs> it wasn't it's like, going that well then, yeah, was it? Well, like, yeah, like, hang on a sec, how, how did we suddenly go from everything was rosy to running out of money? So yeah. the conversation with your founders can't be a surface level conversation. It needs to be, um, okay, things are going great. What does that actually mean? What does your pipeline look like? How's your, how's your um, you know, what, what have you closed this week? What are you expecting to close next week? How's your cash flow, right? Cash is king. This is something else that I've published this week as well and Startup Smart. Um, without cash, you don't have a business. It's the oxygen that keeps you going. Um, and then look at the technology, you know, what is being built. If they've got a sprint schedule, are they actually delivering um, something tangible inside those sprints, those one or two week sprints? Or is, are we just calling it a sprint and they're just doing a whole bunch of dev work, right? So <laughs> Sounds more know, impressive when you use the jargon, I suppose. Oh, you know, I've got an agile approach using some <laughs> lean methodologies and uh, we've got this sprint going and we're going to deliver this <laughs> and the product's going to look like X, Y, and Z. And it's yeah. like, that sounds awesome. It does sound awesome. Yeah, so what have we produced? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, details, details. Yeah, that's, that's yeah. right. And listen, I'm fortunate that um, I do sit on the board of a couple of startups, so I yeah. get a chance to ask really, you know, inside questions and get to ask the founder what's the bank account balance today yeah what was it this time last yeah. month what's the burn right yeah. and that's you know if there's one if there's the north star that any startup should be looking at it is how much money have i got in the bank today and how much longer is it that going to last me based on how we're spending C cash is king as cash they is say. king absolutely Ben, you said so much there um and as you're going through that um i'm just thinking that applies to public markets, that applies to public markets. And so I wanna, I wanna double, I wanna sort of um, uh, backtrack over some of these things and, and let's pivot now to, to the ASX, yep. to, to some listed companies. Um, one of the things that was really interesting you were talking about there was kind of averaging up, which is not a term you hear a lot of in the market. So people, we all anchor. Anchoring is one of these terrible problems that every investor suffers from, even those that pretend that they don't. Um, and I'll put my hand up with, with that. Absolutely mm. terrible. But it, it's very interesting to hear you say that um, you put some money into a business and then as it executes, then you'll put more into it, even if the valuation is twice as much. And I know a lot of investors will look at it, particularly um, on the ASX, they'll say, here's a really great company, put a bit of money in, it does very, very well. And when I say, well, yeah, the share price has gone up, but but because of very good fundamental reasons, the business mm. is executing well. And then you have this, this idea that, oh, I've, oh, it's too late now, I, I've missed my chance. And yet these are absolutely the businesses that you want to back, regardless of what you might have initially purchased it at. And the reverse of that is also true, is just sort of like, I bought a business, it's not executing well the share price has fallen and now I'll buy more because it makes my average price look, yeah. a, look a little bit Well, if you, if you have a look at some of the businesses in the technology space anyway that are on the ASX, there's two, I'm sure you've written about them, 
but the two that I absolutely love for different reasons, Afterpay yep. and Wise Tech Global. Oh man. These are oh, we these talk are for hours. these are yeah. amazing Australian success stories. These yep. are unicorn businesses and there's not that many unicorns, right? Yep. Homegrown Australian technology business businesses that have actually IPO'd on the Australian markets. Yeah. Which I love, you know, I, I love great. the fact right, yeah. that, that they've done that. And despite the um, challenges that Afterbay have in terms of what might be coming for them in terms of compliance around yeah. lending, um, and I don't think they, I don't think it's a fair approach for, um, you know, for anyone to take because they're actually not lending money. They're, you know, it's labour, right? Yeah. So uh, online labour. But the valuation of Afterpay. At the moment, if you look at it, it's about $4 billion, I think, as of today, it's around that. Um, You would have to think that there's a fair bit of upside here because they talk about the fact that they already engage 60% of millennials, like 60% of millennials already use the Afterpay platform, right? This is a market which is so, so difficult to engage, but you've got a market that are passionate about Afterpay as a brand, right? That's number one. Retail. Retail is a very challenging category, but they are helping retailers be more effective. Um, so they're legitimately been, solving a problem. There. They are yeah. legitimately solving a problem in helping retailers sell more. Yeah. Um, they've been very successful with a local approach in Australia, and the market in Australia is probably five percent of their true potential oh, if tiny. they scale. Yep. If they start scale globally, yeah, and they're and having some success in the US. They're too. having success in the US. They've yeah. been over there this week, and if you have a look at um, the potential in the US, if executed correctly, you would have to think that the valuation, like their value at the moment, is well below what it could be in the future. Yep. So if there was a business from my perspective, that I would be doubling down on. Yeah. Um, absolutely. Afterpay is one of those businesses. Yeah, because if you I, didn't I, buy it at two bucks, get over it, right? Like if you yeah. like the business and you like the potential, it's yeah. just, you know... Who that, cares that, if it's 15 bucks, right? right? So, yeah. you know, because, um, you know, I don't think you should, you should not always look at the fact that, oh, I missed out on getting in at, you know, two bucks, right? Yeah. Now, yes, I got in very early on. Mainly I had a, I had a gamble on this thing and I was like, oh, this is awesome. Great. I just so ha- I just happened to, you know, buy it, I don't know, 220 or something like that and then sell a big chunk out of it when I, when I doubled. But so I was like, oh, this is fantastic. Um, but I've let it run a fair bit more and I, I'm yeah. glad I have. So, um, you know, great, you know, great, great business. Yeah. And, 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 and um, the other thing that you said there that was really interesting too before was the this idea who, with management who only tell you want to hear, and I could list a dozen companies off the top of my head on the ASX who every announcement is wonderful, you know, everything is great, and it just it so often turns out that these, in hindsight, tend to be really big warning signs as well. Yep. Um, so I think a lot of that sort of translates across. And the final thing that you mentioned there, that cash is king, yep. that idea, I mean, we, we, especially a lot of these um, early stage tech companies on the ASX, we get this quarterly 4C. We see their cash flow statement. You can see how much cash is there. You can see how much is burning through. You don't have to be Einstein to work out that, you know, they're probably going to run out of cash at some stage unless something materially changes. So yep. the, the difference I think that we have in the, in the market, which is, um, frankly, if I, this is, I know it's contentious, but I tend to find that one of the best things about the market is the liquidity. It's very easy to get in, very easy to get out. Mm. It's great. But the bad part of that is, is that you get a share price flashing you in the face every single day. With a startup, you don't have that, I suppose. Yeah. You know, so you, you don't have that distraction of, oh, what's it worth today? Now what's it worth? Now what's it worth? Well, um, the distraction is different in a startup, which is if I'm running out of money, 
if I've gone and recruited a bunch of people but I need to build technology and the majority of those people that I've recruited are tech and dev people, you start going, oh, I've only got six months' money left. Um, what am I going to do? It could take me four to six months to actually close my next funding round. Right. How do I conserve cash? But if I conserve cash too much, then I'm my speed of development is going to decline. So yeah. the the distraction is is different. And this is you know this is the balancing act yeah. in, a, in a startup, which yeah. is, hey, I've got a certain amount of money. This is what I want to deliver in the next twelve months. Um, and in startup tech, the window is obviously a lot shorter than on a, on a public business in, in uh, many cases because you're going, I've raised money to get me through a certain period of time to deliver X, mm. but I need to be able to show progression during that period to be able to justify my next funding round. Now, how many startups are cash flow positive or profitable they're two different things, obviously, yeah. um, you know, inside their first two to three years. And they're, they're not because it takes, it costs a lot of money and it takes time to actually build a, a, you know, technology, a product and build the audience that you need to be able to generate the revenue that will allow you to be self-funded. Yeah. And, you know, again, that you see, you know, a really good example of that on the public markets is Zero. Um, yep. Zero, another great, phenomenal company, but um, they, they, the share price went racing up um, early on because people could see the potential. And then everyone started worrying about um, the cash flow. And again, this is not a silly thing to, to worry about. But what I think they missed there is what they were actually spending that money on and the investments that they were making and the economics of the mm. business. It's one of those businesses where a little bit of money goes out, a bit of time passes, and then a lot of money comes sort of back in. Yeah. And, and now we're sort of seeing the, the market sort of recognizing that as well. When it comes to the public markets, when you hear a lot of, um, particularly in this sort of tech space, you hear a lot of terms like land grab mm. uh, um, uh, and making sure that you, you know, um, establish that beachhead early and all of these kinds of stuff. How, how do you balance that up with that need to develop quickly to make sure you've got a really great product to capture that audience versus managing all the financials and the cash flows and making sure this thing is sustainable and viable longer term? Another big question for oh, you there. God. I, I, it's... Uh, it's so funny. Insta the advice I give to my startup founders is focus. Mm. Focus on one thing. Yeah. You know, you've got finite resources, finite amounts of money. You've only got a short period in time in which to execute, so you can so you can show value to help with your next fundraising round. Yeah. And if you do too many things, you're going to distract yourself. Right. So, so you need that um, north star. Not yeah. focus on one thing. Yeah. So. Uh, one of the businesses that uh, I've been in for quite a few years now, Audience Republic, used to be called Ticket Squad. Um, it's a social media platform that leverages, or a, a platform that leverages social media data to help drive word of mouth um, for ticket sales for music events and festivals. Yep. Um, Jared, the founder, great guy, um, about 27, 28, uh, really understands the music scene. Um, but he came to us to a board meeting about two years ago and said, okay, so we're doing okay in music events and festivals. I want to go and start selling to consumer brands and to live music and to sport and all of this type of stuff. And we're like, well, hang on a sec. If you distract yourself, you've only got one salesperson across all of these categories, you're not going to be specialized. Whereas your best sell to investors in 12 months time is I've nailed music events and festivals. Um, I already work with 60% or more of that you know of those clients we're solving real problems for them and we've been able to do it with limited resources and you're really focused with your approach there um, then people will turn around and say god if you've executed on such a small market segment 
imagine what you could do with more resources across a broader um, a broader market, which is exactly the path that we've taken. So yeah. only now, two and a half years into the business, are we starting to look at other categories and the um, step into other categories is starting to become much easier because we've got great learnings from the music events and festival space that we can actually apply elsewhere. Translate over. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's a much easier approach there. So whilst the growth maybe over the past 18 months might have been a bit slower than it otherwise would have been, um, the longer term growth or delivery will end up being greater. Um, Man, the time is going so quickly here. Um, yep. it's, it's a very interesting um, time that we're actually having this conversation because it's been a week where US markets and tech stocks in particular have just had a real wobbly and we've we've seen a huge fall there. Um, we followed Although some, it came up again last and night. And then it came back up yeah. again. And, you know, by the hey, time this... The pop- world of technology, it fluctuates wilder. <laughs> and, it, you know, you could almost uh, look at the crypto markets, right? There is huge volatility right, there. Right. There is mass volatility in the technology markets. Yeah. There always has been. And the reasons for that is that technology by the nature of technology itself, is never 100% stable. And you're building technology which is innovative, it's something new, you're always testing, you know, in some of the technology businesses that I've been in in the past, you always talk about, um, you're almost building the boat as you're crossing the ocean, right? right? So, you know, you head off from Sydney Heads and you've got a couple of planks of wood <laughs> and an oar. And, you know, when you're a kilometre out, you kind of you pick up a few other things and you add to it, right? So that's kind of what happens in the world of tech. Um, and, you know, very much what's happened on the, you know, on the crypto markets while there's mass volatility there. So, so I was going to ask you, the, how, how, do you, how do you approach that, though? Is that, is that I know that a lot of guys that I know, a lot of guys I really respect, in fact, will actually say, this is wonderful. It is the best thing that you could hope for volatility as an investor because it gives you the opportunity to either buy great businesses much cheaper than they were previously and sometimes if things just get ridiculous, you know, it gives you a chance to take a bit of cash off the table. Mm. Um, and, and that's an extraordinarily easy thing to say. I, the hard part of it is actually doing it. I, a bear market is something that everyone says they'll take advantage of until they experience one and, and, and no one ever does it. Yep. Um, so w- would there be any sort of, as a, as a last word here, what, what kind of tips would you give in dealing with that? Um, you, you've had a whole bunch of investments, both in public markets and early stage markets. And how do you, how do you, how do you face that challenge of volatility? Uh, I, I probably look at it from a different perspective. So yes, we all want to make money when we're investing, right? Yeah. That's like number one. However, um, when I look at volatility in a market, I actually think it's awesome, right? Yeah. Because it's shaking out underperformers. And more often than not, an underperforming stock an underperforming cryptocurrency, an underperforming private business will disappear, not because of the nature of its share price. It will disappear because the technology, the product or their approach to market is just not viable or they've not been able to innovate in comparison to their competitors in market. So yeah. I um, I actually think that the volatility on the markets, um, it's obviously closely tied to uh, the perception of how healthy those businesses are, but very much tied to um, their potential, what their technology, uh, tech capabilities are and their market capabilities are. Yeah. And as you see people fall out of, uh, of the public markets or, you know, private businesses starting to disappear, it's actually... Um, showing a really healthy ecosystem, which is great businesses, irrespective of how much they're worth, are always going to thrive. And I don't think that, you know, when you're investing that you should always think, oh, well, I bought something at, you know, two bucks and I sold it at five 
but it's now at 20. God, I missed out. Mm. What you should actually be looking at is, hey, it's not what you actually bought the, you know, the asset at. It's actually what you managed to, to sell it for. So if you made 10 points and that's your strategy, great. If your strategy is to try and drive, you know, 10 to 100 time returns on your portfolio, high risk strategy, right? Yeah. So what comes with that is you're going to have a bunch of failures along the path and you wear that. And that's very much the thinking in, um, in, in startup world, which is you want to get, you know, 10, 100 time return on the things that you're going into. But of the 10 things that you might invest into at any one time, you probably realize that nine of them are not going to provide the return, but the one that does provide the return for you is going to outperform everything else combined. And then that, that, that again translates so well to the public markets as well. I think a lot of people, new investors, make the mistake of thinking that to be successful investing, you've got a really high strike rate. And then strike rate's not what matters here, yeah. you know? Um, and the other thing is as well, is everyone wants the 100 bag, obviously, but that very few companies go 100x in a year you know it generally takes a long time for and if they're to doing that on the public markets they start to uh there starts to be a bunch of questions Ex asked of them right exactly and yet and yet very few people are prepared to to give that time so we again we get so focused and and i think one of the bigger mistakes people make is they go oh i'm going to invest in this company because it's got like wise takes a great example huge market potential you know they could be basically the amazon of logistics software yeah you know, quite legitimately um and and they make this business this investment case and that's why i'm going to invest in it they buy it it goes up 20 percent, and they sell thinking that's great look how small well you, you've kind of good on you, but you've mm. not. If what you are after is legitimately the big prize of what you're painting, you kind of have to give that time. And if you are going to give it time, be prepared for that volatility because there'll be times you are 20, 30, 40, 60% back from the peak. And that's just part of the journey. Absolutely. Yeah, that's uh, that's right. It's a world, world of tech. And, uh, you know, whether it's a startup or a, uh, a public business, I think, you know, volatility is going to come with it. And, you know, th I think if you're investing, just go back to, you know, what your thesis or what your personal strategy is. How much risk do I want to wear? How much of a return do I want to try and generate, you know, inside 12 months? Um, yeah. Am I prepared to take money off the table when it's in front of me? Or do I really want to um, see that, you know, longer term potential over the, um, you know, over an extended period of time? Yeah. Ben, mate, we could go on for hours. We've only just scratched the surface here. But look, thanks very much for your time. It's been a great conversation. I hope you've enjoyed it. Thanks for having me. Well, there you go. Thanks very much for your company. I do hope you enjoyed my chat with Ben. If you'd like to leave any feedback or perhaps just make a suggestion or two, please don't hesitate to get in touch. Twitter is the best way to do that. My handle there is at sage underscore simian. Before we go, I did want to update you on what is happening with the podcast and indeed with strawman.com. When I started the podcast series, the idea was to bring you a bunch of conversations slash interviews with some of Australia's leading CEOs and investors. And I really hope you've gotten some good insight and value from the discussions that we have so far published. But on reflecting on the future direction of the series, I'm looking to pivot more towards a panel discussion format, one with regular guests. In part, that's because it's proving to be very difficult to line up interviews with CEOs, at least on a consistent basis, and at least with you know, from companies that I would consider investment grade. I really don't have a lot of interest in talking to CEOs from companies that are very risky or often a little bit promotional and, and more often than not, these are the ones that are most eager to chat. Secondly, when it comes to talking with other investors, 
I feel that's an area that's really well covered already. My mate Owen over at Rask Media is doing such a good job on that front. And I just think there's too much potential overlap there. So I'd really suggest you subscribe to his excellent series. I'll leave a link in the description for those of you that haven't yet come across it. I highly recommend it. At any rate, I'll update you on the new podcast format ASAP, but just know that the wheels are in motion there. As for strawman.com, I'm really thrilled to report that the site continues to attract investors and that the combined recommendations of the community continue to do really well and are outpacing the market. So I feel as though the concept has been somewhat validated in the four or so months since we launched the public beta. Um, But what is really badly needed is a bit of a refresh to the platform. It's a little bit clunky and it really does need to be updated in terms of that user interface. And we have been very busy on that front. I'm loath to put a time frame on these things, but as a rough guide, I suggest you see a you'll see a very big improvement to the site in the next couple of months or so. And it's going to be much more mobile friendly for those of you that are accessing the platform through your phones. Uh, We're also, I'm very excited to say, um, looking to partner with a very big player in the general advice scene, and that's going to significantly accelerate our user growth and activity. So I don't want to give away too much at this stage, but suffice to say, watch this space. Anyway, that is enough for me. I can't wait to get back to you with some more details on all of these new happenings. But in the meantime, thanks very much, and I'll catch up with you next time.